This is the 700th anniversary of St. Thomas Aquinas, and one feels bound to try and celebrate this anniversary in some appropriate way. Though one is, I think, from the very start, bound to ask the question, what kind of commemoration is really appropriate when one is thinking of someone who is uh, a Christian thinker. And it seems to me that one can't simply celebrate the memory of someone who is a Christian thinker um, without bearing in mind really a Christian conception of time. One isn't simply rehearsing the past, one isn't simply saying what a great man this was, putting up a kind of monument to him. One ought really to think of him, it seems to me, in Christian and perhaps even Eucharistic um, terms of time. And these terms, these Christian terms, don't refer only to the past or even to the present, but they also look forward to the future. So I think, for me anyway, celebrating the 700th anniversary of St. Thomas is to inquire not only about the past, but certainly also to inquire about the value and importance of St. Thomas for the future. But before we do that, it seems we've also got to bear in mind our own distance from St. Thomas precisely in the past. It's no good, I feel fairly confident, trying to assume that St. Thomas belongs to us or that we belong to him without any discontinuity. I think the first and most important way of recognizing the importance and significance of St. Thomas, both for us now and for the future, is to see that he really does belong to a past which is very different from our present. Cornelius Ernst of the Dominican community at Oxford making a point which must be cardinal to our commemoration of St. Thomas. St. Thomas is, as he says, of the past. One may ask, then, is his teaching, in the popular phrase, a thing of the past? I think there is a feeling abroad that we have too much Thomism and should get away from it, especially the narrow Thomism of the traditional textbooks, but is sometimes ironically called Thomism of the strict observance. Uh, many people, and this is true at all levels, tend to be tempted to get rid of their responsibility and find somebody to do their thinking for them. And too often this has been the, the function of Thomism for people. But the truth, of course, is that, is that one of the best things in Thomas Aquinas one of the best things he can give us is his own stubborn refusal to let others think for him. Noel Dermot O'Donoghue, an Irish Carmelite in Edinburgh University, and his words are echoed by the great French-Dominican Yves Congar. It is true that Thomists have not always imitated their master very well. They have treated him as an oracle of the absolute, total and definitive truth. The theology of Thomas has, even in modern times, been used in the formulations of the ordinary and above all Roman magisterium in encyclicals as the criterion of the doctrine for doctrinal appraisal. All this may perhaps be explained as an intrinsic element of the life of the Roman Catholic Church. After all, other institutions have their classical reference which are in practice more or less normative. But in ecumenism, one must hold the more Catholic 
principles of orthodoxy and judgments. Pierre Conga was, in fact, speaking there on St. Thomas and Ecumenism, a lecture he gave as part of the centenary celebrations at Oxford and at Cambridge last month. More of that in a moment. But having heard what we have heard, should we perhaps approach our commemorative task with a caution not normally connected with the idea of celebration? How, in fact, do we discover the relevance of St. Thomas for our time, our world, our kind of thinking? Well, for Christians at any rate, Father Ernst suggests an approach. We've got to recognise he belongs to a different historical epoch, so we can't merely make use of him. He's not there to be made use of. He's got to be treated with a proper respect, which means, in fact, recognising that he belongs to the past. Our past, certainly. This is the point of commemorating him, it seems. We want to recognise that he is really a significant part of our own past, but at the same time, our past. It seems to me that this is the kind of thing which happens even in a Eucharistic celebration. We recognise the significance of something in the past, very definitely in the past, but for the future. We treat what happened in the past as a pledge of hope for the future. So then, the discontinuity with the past, the recognition of St Thomas really does belong to a quite different world which we can't recreate. And at the same time then, trying to see with a real sympathy um, what kinds of common concern we share with him. And this seems to me very clearly to be a concern for the, the gospel. Because the more one studies St. Thomas, the more one recognizes the evangelical interest of St. Thomas. The fact that what set him off on this great work of his was a concern to preach the gospel, to manifest the mystery of Christ. And so St. Thomas then, properly and patiently and sympathetically studied, I think does offer one the, the a very singular, perhaps almost a unique example of the way in which the concern for the gospel, concern for preaching, can engage a whole variety of human interests and give this variety of interests a centre in the gospel. So the gospel does not only become itself manifest, but also throws light on and manifests the nature of these various human interests. So it's by then recognising our discontinuity with St Thomas, the fact that it does belong to this different historical world, that we can best, I think, discover this deeper continuity, this shared concern for the gospel, and in this sense then discover the real significance of St Thomas for us now and for the future. He was certainly concerned with the gospel, but there is this very attractive story about him as a boy, um, in the sense that he was we're told about him that he was concerned, always asking the question, what is God? And it seems to me that this question, which he found his own special kind of answer to in terms of an intellectual vision of the essence of God, it's in terms of that question and that answer that we can perhaps meet him again, because we too in our time must ask this question even more urgently, what is God? Perhaps the answer we find won't be exactly the same, but I'm quite sure that's the kind of answer we can only discover by looking at St. Thomas's own answer.
another Oxford Dominican, Father Herbert McCabe. Yes, well, I'd agree with Cornelius Ernst that the really central thing that we have in common with St. Thomas after seven centuries is this concern for the gospel. Uh, but I'd like to do just something about a particular way in which his concerns happen to overlap with ours in the 20th century. I mean, his great interest in language, its possibilities and its limitations. I think one of the really interesting things about St. Thomas, and the one that strikes everybody at first, is this cool and critical approach to the truth, his concern for exactitude, his refusal to make do with shoddy thinking or careless or slipshod expressions. I mean, I don't mean he doesn't sometimes make logical mistakes. Everybody does that. But he's concerned to try not to. He's very concerned to be as exact as he can. But the other equally interesting thing, and this isn't really so well known, is his hard-headed scepticism about the possibilities of language. I find it fascinating that when in the Summa Theologica he discusses the language of theology, you know, how can we actually talk about God, now, the first thing he says is that it looks as if we can't talk about God because we're trapped in the very grammar of our language. See, our talk arises out of our life, and our life is lived in this material world with these material individual things. Our speech is designed to be speech about these things around us. It derives its meanings, in the end, from these things around us. And it isn't just that we, you know, we only have concepts of things that we've seen or handled or experienced in one way or another. It's not just that, but the very structure of our language presupposes that we're dealing with that sort of thing. Even when we don't say it explicitly, the very way that we talk, and the only way we can talk, presupposes that we're dealing with this material world. Now, I find it extremely interesting that this is the first objection that St. Thomas feels he has to deal with. I find it interesting because nowadays we'd recognize this as the most fundamental of all. Nowadays, philosophers, especially philosophers in the English and Irish-speaking world, they say things like, our grammar defines the limit of our world. The way we experience the world, the way we know, is linked with the grammar of our talk. Grammar, if you like, forms a kind of wall around our world. Now, St. Thomas was clear about this, but he points to the various ways in which we, after all, occasionally break our own rules the way we, we take a word that means one clear thing, and then we stretch it to mean something else that's related to that thing in one way or another. Then maybe we stretch it a different way to mean something else. So that the significance of our words is never something quite simple. It's a whole network of meanings related in lots of different ways. There's a certain kind of loose texture about our language. We can do more things with words than we tell ourselves we're allowed to. And St. Thomas says that's the kind of thing we're involved in when we try to speak of what goes beyond our world. We take in perfectly good words like cause or good or maker or whatever, all of which have a meaning within our experience. And we stretch them to try to mean more than they can really mean. We're using words to reach out into a mystery that we can't hope to comprehend. Notice that St. Thomas didn't think that because concepts and words break down when we try to use them of the divine, he didn't think that, you know, because of this we should give up on clear and disciplined thinking and talking. 
He didn't think we should give up on logic. On the contrary, he thought we should go as far as we possibly can. And then, and only then, when the words break, it's just then as they break that we're taken into the mystery, that the illumination happens. St. Thomas is famous for saying on his deathbed that all his writings seemed like straw. But the point is that this wasn't, you know, some change of mind, some deathbed repentance for being a theologian. Um, he knew perfectly well all his life that all theology must be straw. He just wanted to make the best quality straw available. The very title of Yves Congar's lecture, St. Thomas and Ecumenism, had caused a few eyebrows to be raised when first announced, and indeed he himself acknowledged certain apparent incongruities between the legacy of the great master of medieval Catholicism and that of other Christian traditions. Uh, but he was surely right in stressing that fundamental point about St. Thomas, which must also be the foundation of all genuine dialogue between Christians. St. Thomas consecrated himself to the search for and the exposition of the truth with a heroic intensity and a genius that have hardly ever been acquired. He was obsessed by the desire to give recognition to every glimmer of the truth and to adopt the truth that it, pre that it presented. And no matter from whence it came, in the conviction that Omne verum arcocum creditur a spiritus sancto est. Every truth, by whomever it is said, is from the Holy Spirit. Père Congar, following his own master and friend, Père Chenu, laid emphasis on the strength of St. Thomas's evangelical insights and his constant concern with a return to evangelical roots and sources. Here are a few indications of some of the positions held by St. Thomas. Each merits a study, for each I could give a quantity of references, of course. His astonishing perception of the eschatological reference or measure, whether of faith or theology or dogma, which dogma he defines in such a way the vision of the divine truth as tending towards itself. Perceptio divine veritatis tendens in ipsam. A formula that Karl Barth loved to quote. These are activities of tendence towards a measure that is never attained. Is analogous insight into the status of the church, which Thomas saw as intermediary between the synagogue and the kingdom. In his vision of the church, in fact, St. Thomas articulated a most vivid perception of the spirituality of the theological virtues and of grace, which are the earnests of the eschaton, but combined with a recognition of our condition here and now as historical, terrestrial, social, bound to the sense, by the senses. Without a doubt, Thomas articulated and linked both of these two aspects, but the fact remains that there are two aspects, almost two levels, that, on the one hand, accounts for the fact that with Thomas, the mystical bodies, mystical body, 
sometimes refers to the communion of saints, and sometimes to the visible and hierarchical church, with the consequent problems that have recently been examined by E. Mitterer. On the other hand, such a distinction of levels can pave the way for ecclesiologies such as that of Calvin, as presented recently by B. Charles Milner, Jr. St. Thomas prepared the way for the modern distinction between the spiritual and temporal domains, and thus for our, con our conception of the secularity of the world. He was able to do so because he had a philosophy of the proper coherence of natural order, but also because his religious position of mendicant poverty allowed him to disengage himself from theocratic and hierocratic theologies. And even if he did not complete the process himself, he allowed his disciple, John of Paris, to do so. The ceaseless quest for truth, the conviction that when found it must be cherished wherever it comes from, the recognition of variety and complexity, the insistence on finding the real intention behind the apparent form. All these surely make St. Thomas a man for our season. All these, and, as Father Noel Dermot says, the stubborn regard for reason as well as faith. He is the, the great rationalist, the theologian who refuses to see reason as totally fallen and, and helpless, who won't take refuge in faith as an escape from reason, but holds the two in balance. And this is in opposition to much of the prevailing fashionable theology which has its inspiration in thinkers like Kierkegaard and Karl Barth. But these t really take away all initiative from man in his relationship with salvation. God does it all. Aquinas rescues us from this kind of dehumanized Christianity. And this is very important, it seems to me. But there is another way in which Aquinas and medieval scholasticism generally provides a very necessary defense of human dignity in our day. For Aquinas, man has all his human rights and dignity, even when he is hopelessly insane or, or utterly senile, just as he is as much man asleep as awake. And it is only through the enormously important conception of ends in potentia, potential being, the potential, that such a position can be really defended. It is because of this potential hiddenness of his being that man is truly and fully man in his dotage as in the womb. There is, of course, no hope of grasping the reality of this hiddenness except through careful training in, in metaphysical thinking. There is really no use in talking of this potential hidden being in, say, a, a radio or television discussion of abortion, for instance. That is why, having got clear of the, the cramping Thomism of the textbooks, there is uh, literally, and very literally, crying need for the recovery of that ancient way of thinking, which reaches from Plato and Parmenides on to Aquinas. Not then strict Thomism, not museum Thomism, but inspirational Thomism. And of course, Thomism is, is a system of thinking, a, 
well thought out, carefully fashioned, well articulated system, and like all systems, it's simply a medium through which the great mystery of God and man, the great mystery of, of eternity, shows itself to us. It's simply a medium and no more, and Aquinas himself was the first to recognize that. We, we, we know this, this vision of his at the end, which sums up a, a great part of his mind, where he had a sort of sense of the greatness of God and the truth, and felt that everything he had written was just like, like straw. So that even though we take his system and do desperately need his system, in that system itself there is, as it were, a flywheel which assures us that the truth is beyond all systems. And that, of course, we also need. Now, all I have been saying is, I think, brings into context a recent conference in Edinburgh on Aquinas. And the success of that conference gives point to what I was saying, because it was extraordinarily successful and brought in people from all faiths and people of no faith at all. And everybody seemed to find something substantial and challenging in Aquinas, agreement or disagreement being as it were, beside the point, I found that he was a thinker of, of strength and relevance, a very relevant thinker. The only complaint that I heard of this two-day conference in which we had Professor Copleston of London, Professor Oberman of Tübingen, and Father Weishaipel, who has written a definitive book on Aquinas recently, were these three speakers, and the only complaint I heard of it all was that it was too short. You see, fashions, fashions change... But, but Thomism is, has his foundations laid well below the fashionable, it seems to me. And we'll always find a response in, in man's deepest sense of his own dignity. Man as capax infiniti. Man as a being open to the infinite. A being of, of unlimited horizons. Well, now, what we've heard so far in this program uh, came from lectures and talks recorded over the last couple of weeks. Now, for the remainder of the program, there are... Uh, four of us here in the studio, uh, Roberto Farrakhan, who, under his alter ego name of Robert Farron, has written on St. Thomas. Uh, we have Dennis Turner, who's a lecturer in the philosophy department in University College Dublin, and Father Austin Flannery, uh, editor of Doctrine and Life, and um, a member of, another member of St. Thomas's own order, the Dominicans. Um, you know, uh, somebody facetiously suggested, as uh, a title for this program, Should Old Aquinas Be Forgot? And, uh, you know, there was a point to it, something of a point uh, to, the, uh, to this, because, in fact, uh, in the post-Vatican II period, uh, some of us, perhaps, have been thinking that St. Thomas is being somewhat forgotten. We're determined it's not going to happen on RTE, by the way. There's a series of Thomas Davis lectures coming up. Uh, and the initial one will be given, I think it's on this night, fortnight, by, uh, by uh, Robertha Farrakhan, by Robert Farron. And the consultant editor to the series is here. Here is um, is um, is Austin Flannery. And in fact, um, we can regard this program in a way as a bit of a trailer to the series. Although, of course, very distinguished in its own right. Austin, um, what would you say about this feeling that one has? You know, that the whole Thomistic structure—I don't mean the structure of his thought, but the the structure of Thomism uh, as as the norm in 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 Roman Catholic thinking—has sort of collapsed. Yes, but. Well, there's a, certain, there's a certain kind of Thomism which has collapsed. 
the kind of narrow Thomism, I'm using Thomism between inverted commas because it very often wasn't Thomism at all, uh, the, the textbooks which took uh, uh, certain conclusions of Aquinas and made them into absolutes uh, and taught those without any of St. Thomas's refinements or great thinking or anything like that at all. Uh, this is the point that both Noel Dermot and, uh, and uh, Yves Conga were making, yes. Exactly. Now, uh, to the extent that this particular straight-jacketed Thomism, I think, has been lifted as a result of the Council. Now, you probably remember that in the Council Chamber itself, in the decree, when they were debating the decree on priestly formation, uh, the position to be given to St. Thomas in ecclesiastical studies was very hotly debated. On the one hand, you had, you had uh, some fathers in the council chamber who wanted no mention of Aquinas at all, or at least that he should be mentioned within the company of several other philosophers and theologians. On the other hand, uh, you had those who, who insisted that St. Thomas uh, should be the be-all and end-all of ecclesiastical studies. Um, now, in the event what emerged, it was not just a, a compromise, but prob- probably a, a very good statement of what Aquinas' position should be. Uh, if you would allow me to quote just one sentence from, from Father Joseph Neuner, a very important uh, commentator on the Council documents, and he said to this, it was decreed that St. Thomas would remain, that, sorry, that, uh, we, that we would remain in the tradition and at the same time be open to new questions and insights. That this, in effect, what is meant by phrases like sancto toma magistro, uh, uh, which is translated into one of the English versions as under the tutelage of St. Mm-hmm. Thomas. Uh, this, I think, does. Uh this is very interesting to know this and to see this as the sort of background and we're talking about, you see, after all, as, as uh, uh, the point that, which um, Cornelius Ernst kept making, you know, that we are at a considerable distance from St. Thomas. He died 700 years ago last Thursday. And, uh, I mean, one has to ask, uh, one has to call into question, if he, and one hopes to with an affirmative answer, uh, uh, this whole question of his relevance. And I know it's a question that... Uh, that uh, you, uh, by the Farrakhan, uh, could say a lot about. Yes, indeed. Uh, first of all, I think that it was right to say this, because uh, the zeitgeist always affects thought and action, and there are always accidentals in attaching to uh, even the most uh, exalted genius. The accidentals can be mistaken for the essentials, in particular in a philosopher's work, uh, so our business, if we are capable of that business, is to get rid of the accidentals and preserve the essence. Um, I, at the same time, would like to make two points. I have listened many times to colleagues, and very in- intelligent and well-read colleagues indeed, uh, who use the words medieval and the words metaphysical as terms of abuse. This, uh, needless to say, uh, riles me considerably, and I once remarked uh, rather portentously that the man who uses the word medieval or the word metaphysical as a term of condemnation is a prisoner of the 19th century and is not lodged even in one of the better cells <laughs> because these are occupied by people like uh, like uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge who read everything, read the summer as well as everything else, and by Charles Lamb, who found a copy of the Summa on a barrow in London, and allowed that there were some good, some good things in it. Now, take the reason for that attitude, that is to say, the, the irrelevance of the Middle Ages as a whole, never mind St. Thomas alone, uh, seems to me a very 19th century thing. And 
some of the 19th century thinking is a hangover. But on the other hand, you have a curious uh, second side to the situation, that in the 20th century, when Pelican Books decided to have a set of uh, single volumes on separate philosophers, Aquinas was included, and Father Copleston of the Society of Jesus wrote a most excellent book on him. And uh, even A.J. Eyre, who was far, is far from the thinking of St. Thomas. Yes, you'd say completely out of sympathy, one would yes, imagine. Was, one would imagine, was, was yes. respectful yeah. yes, yes. of the book. Um, the question of language has also come up. Uh, I have had personal reason to argue about the St. Thomas's use of Latin. I am no Latinist, but I can read him. I do read him in Latin. And uh, there was a, an Australian priest who was doing a postgraduate course in Rome some years ago in music and who used to take his holidays in Ireland and came to my house several times when he was home and who uh, scorned St Thomas's hymns. Um, he said he was no poet, unlike Augustine, when nobody would ever deny Augustine's genius as a poet and as a supreme writer in any language. But to say that St. Thomas was no poet is, to me as a poet, ridiculous, utterly preposterous. And anybody, to take a very simple example, anybody who can listen to John McCormack singing César Frank's setting of the, um, the Panis Angelicus and not be moved seems to me impenetrable, impervious to poetry to music, even if you speak the words. Could I, could I set a tiny cat among pigeons here? Surely, uh, are, we, are we certain that, that in fact, uh, that the, the liturgy of, uh, Holy, of uh, Corpus Christi, from which these hymns, are, of course, are part, are, 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 they, are, do, are we certain that they are St. Thomas's? Well, now you ask me, I don't know story. I don't know. There is a certain controversy about it. I, I don't know. Some have cast doubt of whether St. Thomas actually wrote them. Yes. I yeah. honestly just don't know. Well, uh, yeah. perhaps, of course, it's like, it's like Shakespeare, that one can, uh, if they weren't written by St. Thomas, they were written by somebody else called St. Thomas. Well, no, all right. Uh, <laughs> let's come to the text of it. I'm sorry if I'm taking up too, too much time on my... I'll, I'll act you in a moment now. <laughs> right. I'll just make one more point. that um, It is uh, customary, almost, to speak of the poverty of St. Thomas's Latin and to compare it with uh, with greater users of the language, uh, like Augustine, whom I mentioned already. Uh, if I am not mistaken, even such a devoted son of St. Thomas, or a follower of St. Thomas, as Father Martin Darcy apologises mm. for his Latin, I, again, I am no scholar in this field, but to me, as a writer, it seems to me he uses the language precisely as it needs to be used for his purposes. Well, of course, the whole question of clarity, and I, <coughs> I would like you to come to that in a minute, Austin. But, Dennis, I think in the meantime you've something yes, to say Yes, just there. on uh, the response of contemporary philosophers to, um, to, to Aquinas, it, it, there is one other remarkable story, uh, that um, a person visiting Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, happened to notice among the very few books which Wittgenstein actually read that uh, included uh, were the five volumes of the Summer. And he was very surprised and asked him, um, did, did he read this? And he said, oh, yes. And uh, on being asked what, what he thought of them, he said, well, um, I don't think much of his answers, but I think his questions are absolutely brilliant. And <laughs> I, I think um, 
Uh, th- this is a very important point. I mean, Wittgenstein rather went in for questions yes. rather than answers. Yes. Yes. I mean, yes. it's estimated yes. that he asked something like 2,000 questions <laughs> in the philosophical investigations and only attempted to answer about 100 and only <laughs> pretended that he gave a, a clear answer to about two. But um, uh, this is a very important question uh, point, I think, because um, uh, it's Aquinas' ability to raise a question which seems to him to be a fundamental question of the age, of the condition of theology in the age, of thought in the age, to state all the answers which are available to him, sometimes in the form of an objection to the way he's going to answer to it, to consider all the objections, uh, to modify his answer in terms of the objections, to write with extraordinary clarity about um, uh, the problems and his answers, to use a Latin which in literary terms probably is fairly bad, but in philosophical terms is a perfect instrument of his thought. Um, and uh, in this way, to be, it seems to me essentially a popular theologian and not a professional one. Mm. That is to say, he's taking up um, the questions which exercise the faithful about their faith, uh, confronting them with the problems which are raised for the faithful uh, by the world, uh, by society, by language, by their everyday experience. And in this sense, it seems to me that, that uh, in another respect, he's unlike St. Augustine, who formed you know, perfect literary books, in a sense, that uh, Aquinas doesn't really bother much about that. He wants to write clearly, simply, openly, uh, to the world as it is experienced by everyday people, let us say a world of faith in his age, as it is experienced, and to answer in the clearest possible way by concentrating on asking exactly the right sort of question about it. And I I think, to me, that's his relevance to me as a person attempting to write philosophy. I think you'd go along along with that, Austin. Totally. I've often felt about it. Aquinas, um, that he must have uh, imposed an extraordinary self-discipline on himself mm. in, the, in the matter of language, because whether he wrote Pangelicus Pange- or Pangelingua, in, 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 in a sense, is not terribly important because he was, I'm, sh- I'm certain he was quite capable of it. Ah. A man who, 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 <laughs> well said. who, who shows well the, said. the extraordinary sensitivity to, to, to language, to people's use of language, to to, to, to uh, um, to, to the, and to the issues of, he, of his day, couldn't but have done this. Father McCabe made the same point mm. very well, I thought, earlier on. Yes, you know, exactly, yes. exactly. Now, I, I, speaking as an ordinary Dominican who has come through the mill uh, and was, was exposed to Aquinas for several years and exposed to four-year study of the Summa, uh, it's an experience which I, I will, will treasure for the rest of my life and exposed to it under good teachers, I, I might add, too. Again, this this clarity of expression is one of the most abiding memories that I have. Someone did say once that you know Aquinas is like a, a clear pool, whereas a, a quotation from Augustine is like a, a salmon flashing across this clear pool. But they were about different things, oh. uh, uh, and. Uh, that, that, that is true. I, I, I think that um, Aquinas never appears uh, in the form of a polemicist. He's, ne- he's never trying to you know, pull anybody down. Very rarely does he uh, any passion arise in his writing, it seems to me, uh, in an overt form. There are occasional remarks about um, how David of Dinant very stupidly said that God was the prime master of the world or something like this, very occasionally. And But it is significant that on the one famous occasion when he does get very annoyed indeed, it's in a polemical work against uh, some contemporary uh, um, atheistical theologians, practically, the the Averroists, in which he says to them, his objection to them is this, 
would they kindly get out of their corners, in which they snivel to the young and, and, and don't come out clearly with what they have to say, but just do a little bit of propaganda on the quiet? And would they state their position as clearly as I do? Then I'm prepared to argue with you, but until such time as you do that, you're not worth considering. Yes. Pretty well, effectively, what he says. And it's quite clear that what he wants is objective, clear argument. You know, y- yes, I, and another thing that did make him cross, I think, was the, was the sort of... The, the people on his own side mm. who, who invented the wrong kind, the silly kind of, 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 of explanation, mm. and who, as he said, what was his phrase, irisio infidelium or something like that, you know, that, they, you know, that they, all they could do was make a laughingstock of the gospel or of the church. You know. I, I, can't, I can't resist saying at this point that he also got angry with those who attacked religious orders. <laughs> full stop. Yes, yes. Well, now look, this whole program has been a sufficiently commercial for the, for the Dominicans, yes. but I, I won't allow you to go down that. Well, was, to, yeah, what I wanted to say, to say was this: that uh, people who question the relevance of Saint Thomas uh, seem to me to forget that he was by no means a conventional thinker in his own t- time. Quite he true. was, in fact, accused, as we know from history, of uh, having the audacity to de- dethrone Augustine, hmm. whose name keeps cropping up in connection with yes. in Thomas, and that, in fact, the Bishop of Paris, we understand, had his books burnt hmm. a few years before St. Thomas was canonised. Yes. <laughs> so, for being such a daring, revolutionary thinker. Yes, there was probably the odd red face around when he was canonised, you know, I can imagine, yes. Um, you know, uh, the, the other thing, I think, that um, a very attractive thing and a very important thing in our time, I, you said when people question the relevance of St. Thomas, I, I suggest Thomas himself, if he were with us today, would be the first man to question his relevance, to question it at any rate, yes. Yes, but you mean a different thing. <laughs> you mean a different well, thing. You I, mean I, that he questions himself all the time. I, yes, yeah. and I mean this also, this this thing that Congar spoke of there, you know, that he the way he, he expresses, um, the while, as Noel Dermott said, the hard-headed rationalism, but nevertheless... Not not coming out with absolutes where there are no absolutes. Saying the things t- you I've I've heard you talk on this before too, Austin. But again, if it's in while his language, in one sense, we might even use the word pedestrian, uh, because as 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 it has been pointed out, he was talking about current problems, and and his language is tailored to to the problem at hand. Uh, at the same time, his, his language also does reveal another characteristic. Uh, one might even use the word diffidence, diffidence in, in, in the face of truth, humility, let us say. Uh, uh, it's charged with a re- realisation that if we don't have an absolute grasp of absolute truth, that so much of our thinking is tentative. Mm. Uh, uh, when, when I was doing theology in, in Oxford, Father Victor White just constantly draw our attention to the, the words like fidator, it would seem, or perhaps. Now, when St. Thomas used perhaps, it wasn't in, in the way we use it often nowadays. <laughs> perhaps it's just a pause yes. for breath. Yes. Uh, and, but you're either being, uh, saying something very categoric and absolute. Uh, um, I, I think I heard you were, were coming out, Sean, with a comment about our use of, of, of maybe... Oh, well, the, the old um, the riddle about what's the difference between a, a diplomat and a lady. Uh, if it, you know, and it was that if a diplomat uh, says um, no, he means maybe... I'm sorry, if he says yes, he means maybe. If he says maybe, he means uh, he means um, no. But if he says no, he's no diplomat. <laughs> Whereas if uh, if a lady says no, she means maybe. If she says maybe, she means yes. And if she says yes, she's no lady. lady. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when Aquinas said maybe, he meant maybe. He meant exactly maybe. Uh, and this is, exactly. I think, this is the exactly. important thing. This maybe. is the important thing. And I think one of the differences that I would be most conscious of between what we used to use the word again, Thomas, the Thomistic school, some of them, not all the goodness knows, but the, uh, would be that they turned his 
tentative and very nuanced conclusions into absolutes that became theses to be defended against all comers. Yes, yeah, academic but, in the wrong sense. Yes, yes, I was just going to say about this that uh, one of the striking things about Aquinas's method is the way in which he confronts openly the contemporary philosophies of his day and takes them very seriously and assimilates them. He's got this capacity of assimilation, which oh, is yes, quite incredible. Yes. Yes, um, but he was a man of large appetite. That's anyway. right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, so he even had to cut a hole in the table to fit his belly. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, <laughs> his intellectual belly, I think, was, uh, <laughs> was even more striking than that. I mean, it, it was enormous, and its yes. power of digestion was, yes. uh, was quite considerable. And this is something which uh, we're, we're very scared to do nowadays. We get very frightened when theologians come to terms with or attempt to come to terms with contemporary philosophers. Yes, yes. And uh, don't just condemn them. Uh, well, we're less frightened than we were, but um, rather than moving away from Aquinas in doing this, uh, we're in fact entering very much into his spirit yes. in doing this. Yes. So long as we recognise one other thing, that a theologian is in a sense not uh, a, an academic, but somebody who's trying to articulate the tradition of an institution, yes. which is, you know, the church. In other words, you're working within that context. <laughs> but what yes. Aquinas does is show how large a context that is, how mm. demanding it is uh, in terms of you know coming to grips with the contemporary world mm-hmm. and so forth, yes. and simply to take what he does in his age as a final word for our age is of course completely to betray yes. this uh, the, 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 this attitude. It is uh, uh, to deny the very roots of his conception of theology, to cut off those roots of his conception of theology, do the very opposite of what he he did. But uh, there is one other uh, point which we're all familiar with. And that is the uh, idea of many uh, people outside the Christian churches particularly who dismiss him uh, as a theologian, intending it to be a dismissive term, and not a a theologian, not a philosopher at all, because he had all the answers ready before he started Mm. to discuss the question. Uh, I think this is, it may be uh, quickly answered, as Chesterton might say, or Bellock, rather, might say, it may be quickly answered by the reply he gave to one of his students who asked him, wasn't it a dreadfully um, uh, sacred... What, what is the word? Extremely sinful and... and blasphemous. Blasphemous of uh, Job to argue with God. And St. Thomas said, it matters not to whom you speak so long as you speak truth. Indeed. Yes. A wonderful sentence. And, and of course, this is, as, as Kungar said there earlier in the programme, you know, this, this is, of course, the heart and core of it all. And I mean that, and this as we also the point that wherever, uh, in, in, as it were, the other side of that coin is to recognise that wherever it seems to oh, come, sure. that it is always, sure. it is sure. always, you know, it, it, the spirit yeah. of truth is, speaks through, through, through many voices. And I think, you know, that, um, as it were, if narrowing it in one, narrowing our, our focus a little, in one sense, <laughs> uh, I mean, looking at him specifically as a prof, as a thinker, as a prophet for our time, you, you know, I think that all that has been said is of terrible importance to us as Christians and uh, uh, as members of the Catholic Church. Those of us who are members of the Catholic Church have perhaps in the past, you see, because of the ba- of the bad tomes and because of of, in, in other words, treating him as an oracle. Uh, that those of us who have been, as it were, felt liberated, uh, you know, since the Second Vatican Council, uh, would perhaps, uh, it would do us all a good deal of good to go back and look at him again and see, because there are many things, new approaches, new theological approaches today, um, I think, find very often an extraordinary sympathetic echo 
in what he's written. Mm. Uh, you would agree, I think, on that in sacramental theology. Yes, well, well, certainly, uh, uh, as a, um, a lay Catholic who, you know, being a philosopher, I have to try and get my thinking about my faith to come in some sort of terms with uh, yes. the, the, the philosophy which I do. Uh, I've found myself that, um, coming back to Aquinas over and over again, that um, it's at the level of the sacraments that I find him, just at the moment perhaps, uh, most significant and interesting. And uh, I'd just like to pick up here a point which was made by some of the speakers in the earlier part of the programme about um, uh, Aquinas's concentration on the gospel. Christ uh, and the presence of Christ and so forth. No, quite clearly, this is an element of the sacraments. But what Aquinas brings together with that is a recognition that sacraments are social institutions mm-hmm. within a church. Mm-hmm. And um, while at the moment we're tending to split away sometimes the institutional aspects of the church as a hierarchy, as a, a priest-ridden thing, if you like, um, from uh, the, the, the sort of Christly presence you know, in the church. It seems to me that an emphasis on the sacraments brings those two together yes. in a very explosive sort of a way. For me, I would go along with Herbert McCabe on this. Aquinas is a revolutionary, uh, not just in the sense that he's a revolutionary thinker in his own age, but that in that his idea of the sacraments is the idea of a form of revolutionary presence of Christ having consequences in the revolutionary activity of Christians. Mm-hmm. It, in other words, implies that Christ's presence in the world is a revolutionary presence. Now, this is not explicit in Aquinas, it's put in a theological sort of way, but it's quite clear that he was living, in a sense, in a theological world. Living in a very secularised world, it seems to me that um, it has implications for the concept of social revolution, which is underpinned by the idea of a sacrament, which, if you like, uh, brings together the idea of social action and the presence of Christ in the church in a very, very striking and illuminating way for me and it seems to me this is a substantive content in Aquinas' thinking which I personally would draw on almost straightforwardly and directly nowadays rather than even through uh, a lot of the theology which has come uh, between Aquinas in our own day. It seems to me it's, it's highly and directly relevant sort of uh, theological point. It will be interesting to hear McCabe on mm. this. He's talking about uh, St. Thomas on meeting Christ in the sacraments in this uh, T- Thomas Davis lecture series mm. which is... McCabe is always worth hearing. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> uh, you know... Um, <coughs> Uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground and uh, I I was very interested how you uh, jumped, as it were, quite uh, naturally from Christ to social... from Christ in the sacraments to social revolution, back to St. Thomas. And, of course, it's this universality of the man, I think, that that, that is, in in the last analysis, the great thing, you know. Uh, The the, the continuing fact about him which makes the mind boggle, you know, this this extraordinary breadth of vision. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree more. As as Robert was talking there earlier on about the the, the Middle Ages, um, you know, Aquinas has suffered from this this, this bad and totally erroneous erroneous impression of the Middle Ages. Because, you know, you find reading Aquinas and, and remembering one's studies of Aquinas, uh, that uh, what you see there in his pages is a totally different thing from the concept that people seem to have of Aquinas. You know, for, for example, uh, you mentioned his universality, uh, his, his use of reason, his use of, of one might even use the word pure reason, where emotions, acrimony, uh, any sort of controversy, any undue respect for authority, all these things can be ruled out if reason is in question. For example, in one of, one of his Quadlibetums, he asks whether... Uh, which is to be preferred uh, in theology, reason or authority? And he says, it depends on what you're about. Uh, if you're trying to discover whether or not a particular doctrine is of faith, fine authority holds proper highest place. But if you're attempting to understand the teaching of the church, then it says, 
reason comes to the top and authority holds the lowest place. And he says, if the teacher solves the problems by appealing to authority, then he says the disciple, the, the, the pupil, goes away empty-handed. Discipulus vacuus discerit. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. phrase. Marvellous, yes. Marvellous, yes. But it's this, 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 this adherence to reason that gives him this, his universality. Of course. He can confront yes, any problem. That is the centre of his whole yes. And I, 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 I take your point and report so well about the, the way he has suffered from a misconception of the Middle Ages and of a, den, of a, of a denigration of the Middle Ages, but he's also suffered by a, an ideal, by a romantic idealization of the oh, Middle Ages, certainly. which is also uh-huh. current, certainly. particularly in Catholic circles, certainly. and which people, again, are reacting against, you yes. see. And true. I feel, Equally the, true. you know, and the thing is, of course, that the man is too immense to be, to be because I, I suggested that he was a man far our season, uh, mm. early in this programme, you know, man for all seasons does uh, does is I don't think is an exaggeration in his case at he all. He would have I loved think. Thomas More, and Thomas More would have loved him. And true. I think, and I and one might speculate as to who are the thinkers and teachers today, who are the people that he would have liked most. And you know, uh, nice thought, we, we, satirical essay in, in your paper, and, Father. And do you know he he, he, he <laughs> might be he we might be surprised at the company he would have selected. Indeed. You know, and there, there might be again a few red faces. He, he was a mendicant in his day, wasn't and he? Indeed, and his, and his ideas disapproved. Yes. So again, so I think all Aquinas is not likely to be forgotten. And, you know, it would be interesting to know what they'll be saying about him in another hundred years. Rabbi the Farrakhan, Dennis Turner, Austin Flannery. Thank you very much. Good evening.